Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the, day, the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be, light, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds livestock and creeping things and the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and it was so and god made the beasts of the earth according according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and god saw that it was good then god said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, 
Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day... God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of God. Astronomers uh, tend to discover new asteroids all the time. Um, just uh, a few weeks ago, I think it was a few weeks ago, that I had read about an asteroid coming through that, that they hadn't seen until it actually was passing within, um, I think it was 1,000 miles of the planet, which is pretty close. Um, evidently, it would have uh, burned up in the atmosphere or whatever, but they don't, didn't see it coming. All of a sudden, it was there, and... Um, and if it had have crashed through, if it had been big enough, perhaps they would have seen it. But still, if they had have seen it, they, there's not much to do about it as much as movies you know, show examples of what mankind might do about it. But if it came through, the devastation in Turkey, as bad as it is, would pale in comparison to what would happen. There's just destructive forces that are potentially out there. As, as much as the odds are against it happening, I don't like the fact that there's a chance uh, at all of Earth being devastated in my lifetime, or more specifically, my kids' lifetime, and, and more specifically, my grandkids. There's a sense of being powerless and at the mercy of some sort of chance. So stuff just happens, and we can't do anything about it. And of course, talking of asteroids seems perhaps a little bit distanced from any current or imminent threat, but what of our health? What of our culture or society? What of decisions that are being made in government uh, that are anathema to Christ, the gospel, the nature of man, and the glory of God that either now or sometime in the future affects our faith, affects our workplaces, our families, our felt freedoms, our morality, our truth? What, what of the spiritual battles we're up against as we fight against the spiritual forces that are in the heavenly places? What of the emotional battles that we deal with, the depression, the anxiety, the, the plague, so many? But what of the threat of ongoing sicknesses? What of the threat of our greatest enemy, death? And so often in our lives, there seems to be very little we can do to control our so-called destiny or the safety of our families. And even Christians who believe strongly in God's providence feel helpless and deal with significant anxiety and fear. No, no one enjoys suffering. No one looks forward to an accident. No one looks forward to the possibility of an accident. No one looks forward to a natural disaster, no matter what the odds are. 
could be one in 250,000, the fact that there's a chance, knowing that things happen, but so often in our lives, there just is that reality that we struggle with. And this morning, we're going to listen to God's message of comfort that comes to Israel in that specific time and throughout their history and to us even this morning in the first chapter of Genesis. Israel was as fearful of the unknown as you and I are. When God sent the message of Genesis 1 to Israel, they lived in the fear of the power of pagan gods, of foreign gods. You remember that they were enslaved in Egypt and they had experienced the powers of a host of Egypt's gods. Um, the, the most powerful being the sun god, Ray, and in Ra was Ray, but in Canaan, the Israelites were confronted by another set of gods, especially Baal and Astarte. And when Israel would be exiled to Babylon, they met up with another set of powerful gods, especially the main god, the primary god, Marduk, who was the supposed creator of heaven and earth, and also the gods of the heavens, namely the sun, the moon, and the stars. These were, these were gods that they worshipped, and they were powerful gods as far as they were concerned. So listen, this morning, try your best to place yourself in Israel's situation. Fearing the unknown, the absolutely unpredictable, the powerful foreign gods, and, and, and hear and absorb and relish the message of comfort from God himself for that message is not only for them, but it is to you this morning. For you, many of you who are suffering significantly. Others who may not be suffering significantly this morning, but will one day suffer in some manner. Or we, are, we all struggle in many ways. So what is the message that's being told to us this morning? If I were to put this message in one sentence, it would be this. By the word of his omnipotent and sovereign power, the king of the universe created the earth as his good kingdom. By the word of his omnipotent, every, every word, every word here, when we, when we craft these things, we try to craft them in such a way as it's like every word is like really needs to be sat on. The, the word of his omnipotent, all-powerful and sovereign power, the king of the universe created the earth as his good kingdom. Every word is important. This morning, I just want us to walk through the omniscient accounting that was meant by a gracious, loving God to comfort his people and for them to be at rest in him, to find rest in him as they entered the promised land amid their temptation to great fear. What is it? What is it that they were to be assured of? What is it that you and I need to be assured of today amid the tumult of our own experience? Well, first thing that they needed to hear and we need to hear really is the king of the universe created everything with his word, his, his word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Our God created the heavens and the earth. What is it that God's people needed to know amid going into these other lands where there was so much emphasis on other gods that had power and they were the creators and they had differing opinions and thoughts about and stories about the created order what they needed to hear was God saying, I created the heavens of the earth. Your God, O Israel, created the heavens and the earth. That, that their God created 
the entire universe. They, he created absolutely everything. Now, can you feel, if, if they're questioning their very existence and the fear of somebody else being in control, that where does God start in, the, in his scripture? Where does God start in comforting him? I created everything. Not, not them, not him. Verse 2 quickly shifts the focus to this planet as God's creative work continued more specifically. The author says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Earth was a wasteland. Uh, it was uninhabitable. Nothing could live here. It was pitch black. No light at all. No light whatsoever. It was a deep, dark, ocean-like thing. No plants could spring up. No creatures could thrive on this earth. Point is, it was utter chaos. And yet... There was hope, and the hope of the second half of verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God hovering above the chaos, not part of the chaos, hovering above the chaos. He hovered above it. The Spirit of God, or the breath of God, is about to bring order out of chaos. God, His breath, His voice is about to speak. God said, verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. Do you, do you, don't skip past the omnipotency here, the power. God spoke light, and it was so. With his breath, with his word, God powerfully forced back this chaotic, horrible darkness with brilliant light, light that would make life on earth possible, and yet there was still that formless watery deep. So God speaks again in verse 6. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. A little poetic? It was so. God spoke that's the point. God spoke, it was so. What do they need to hear? That God speaks, and his word is true, and what he speaks happens. In this case, order out of chaos, light. So the earth was starting to take on form, water below, sky above. But life as God intended was still impossible, so God spoke again. In verse 9, God said... If you're, if, you're, if you're reading along in your own Bible and you have a pen or you're reading along in that little journal thing, be underlining every time it says, and God said. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. You see the pattern? God said, and it was so. Omnipotent, sovereign king. The deep waters retreated, the land appeared, and now the earth had a definite form. There was not only the sky, the atmosphere, and the oceans, there was dry land. Now the earth was able to sustain life. And it's interesting that in Genesis 1, just alone, the phrase God said is spoken ten times. And if you know anything about biblical interpretation, the number ten is considered a number of fullness, completeness. The Israelites, as you might imagine, would have been reminded of something else at that point. Again, they're at the, it's after Mount Sinai, they're at the edge of the promised land, and into the future when they're in Babylon or in Assyria, and they're reminded these ten times that God spoke 
What was another thing that he spoke 10 words of on Mount Sinai? What was it? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. It was the God's ten words given them on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 20, where God sets forth his law for Israel. And in 10 words, Genesis 1 sets forth God's word for his creation. He speaks and it happens. It speaks and it's truth. Consider what the psalmist says in Psalm 33. He says this, By the word of Yahweh, the Lord, the heavens were made, and the breath of his mouth all their host. Verse 9 of Psalm 33. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Do you, do, you, do you see the omnipotency? Do you see the sovereignty? The, do you see the kingliness, the authority? Do you see that that's what the Israelites needed as they were walking into certain, uncer certain uncertainty? They, they, there were things that they didn't know were going to come, and they were fearful of all that stuff. And God's saying, I'm certain. My word, certain. In ancient times, kings were the law of the land. The king spoke and it was done. Genesis 1 portrays our God as the king of the universe. Hands down, no competition. His, his word is powerful. He speaks and it's done. He commands and it happens. He wills and it comes to pass. Nothing stays his hand. Our God is the sovereign king of the universe. Nothing happens that does not happen apart from his approval or without his will. There is no such thing as chance happenings. Our, our king is sovereign and he is good and he is in control of his universe. Israel needed to hear this and, and believe this just like you today and me today. With his powerful word, God brought all things into being and he upholds them with the word of his power, Hebrews 1, 3. And of course, when you get to the Gospel of John, he intentionally, John intentionally chooses and echoes these glorious words that we've come to this morning in Genesis 1 when he says this, in the beginning wasn't just Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, powerful, omnipotent, sovereign, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word wasn't just a God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. No chaos, no craziness. The light has not overcome it, or the darkness has not overcome it, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And of course, you read Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1 in particular, and God spoke in the past by numerous different ways, and in these days he speaks through his son, Jesus. John identifies Jesus Christ as the word of God through whom all things were made. Jesus was there in the beginning. He is the one, he is one with the sovereign creator God. In, in Colossians 1, the apostle Paul says, says this, he says, he is the image, this is Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and they were created for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not only certain things, all things 
hold together. What is it that Israel needed to hear? What is it that you and I need to hear? In Him, all things hold together. Your parenting, your marriages, your health, your future, your present, your government, your this, that, and the other thing, all of it is under the sovereign rule and reign of King Jesus. Seeing the exalted nature of King Jesus makes us more aware, should make us more aware in that there is one gospel, should make us more aware of the tremendous sacrifice in becoming a human being. Paul says in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself and took on the nature of a servant or a slave. The, the king of the universe, fully God, fully man, took on a kind of slavery, servanthood. When the world was headed for destruction, God spoke his word again through Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes on him would not perish but have eternal life. The Word of God created this world, and the Word of God redeems the world. Now what are we to have seen? What are we to know? That, that God created the earth with His omnipotent Word. What do I want? What do we want as elders? What do we want this church to know? We want, we want to know, we want the church to know that God created the world hands down with his omnipotent word and he rules over it. Ten times, ten times the text says God said, 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 God said. What is it we are to hear? What is it we are to follow? God speaks. He speaks and when he speaks, it happens. His promises are yes and amen. They are true, absolutely. We believe that from the get-go, from the very first words of this book that's told to talk, talk, uh, teach us about God, reveal, he's revealing himself to us. He's revealing himself to us in Genesis chapter 1. Not only details, some details, but specifically and most importantly, that he is the sovereign king of the universe. He is the king what he says comes to pass. Our sovereign God is in utter control, though it may not seem like it at certain times. Do not fall for the lie of the enemy that makes you think that God is distant. God is very much involved. God is over all, in all, through all, for everything exists for him. Now what is it that we need to know this morning? What, what, what word of promise is it you need to hear? Second thing I'd like for us to consider is this. The, the king of the universe created everything in seven days. Now, the author of Genesis 1 intends to highlight not just the number 10, uh, as far as I'm concerned, and it, but also the number 7. Not a big numbers guy, and just I think that, that every single number means something, but 10 does, and 7 certainly does, as does 40. Verse 1 has exactly seven words in the original language. 
Verse 2 has exactly 14 words in the original language. In this whole passage, the name of God is mentioned 35 times, five times the perfect number. Like the number 10, again, 7 is another special number. You know what number 7 means. What does it mean? What does it mean? Perfection. So fullness, God said, God said, God said, and perfection. And the number 7 for Israel, at the time that they're hearing this for the first time, it's part, it's, seven is part of their weekly rhythm as a, as a, as a family of God, as, as Israel. It's their weekly rhythm. When Israel traveled through the desert, the Lord taught them to gather manna six days, of a week, six days out of the week and to trust God. The manna gathered throughout the, on day six, specifically, would not spoil for day seven. They were to work six days and rest the seventh, trusting God to protect and provide for them, to trust in the omnipotent one, to trust in the provider, to trust in the protector, to trust in him, believe him for his word because he speaks and it's so. So don't gather on day seven. (laughs) Gather on day six. Trust me. Amid all the stories of the nations that they say that their gods were who created and ruled and controlled them with anger and fear and retribution. The author of Genesis 1 uses the pattern of Israel's week to tell Israel that the Creator is in fact their God, Yahweh, distinct, absolutely distinct from all other gods and over all other gods. The gods of the nations were real. They weren't just made up images. There was a sense of demonic, satanic realities God over them all. In the continuing account of creation, we see a clear parallelism that that the author intends to highlight the absolute and utter distinction of Yahweh over the gods of the nations. So there's going to be a slide up here, I think, um, that shows this. um, Yeah, this. So uh, we already considered together the first three days for a few moments. Much more to be said, of course, but keeping it tight this morning, we're God sets limits to the forces of chaos in these first three days. And on day one, we see that God created light. He allotted darkness to the night. On, on day two, God created the sky and separated the waters below from the waters above. On day three, God pushed the waters back so there was space for dry land. The world had been formless and empty and dark, now had form, had light, and was about to be filled with creatures. Now, the reason I bring this up and show this slide specifically is because it seems clear that the author isn't necessarily, at least primarily, interested in giving a chronological report of what happened exactly. Instead of a specifically objective chronological report, the author has given us a carefully crafted literary work, a sermon to comfort Israel and us today. And let me me try to explain my reasoning for this. I alluded to this earlier, but as Israel was facing the false gods of the pagan nations, they feared them. Gods like the sun, gods like the moon, gods like the stars. All lower G, right? Now consider where the author places the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars in the days of creation. He places them on day four. What does he place them between? Creation of vegetation the creation of fish and birds, things that they, the nations, worship, exalt, fear. God says, um, I created actually like plants 
and, and those things that they worship, and fish. Not that they're not important. God is the God over all of it. He's simply saying, hey, like, look, I'm the creator, the sun, moon, and even the stars, not God. And in verse 16, the author is even careful to avoid the names of the sun and the moon. Why, why does he call them the two great lights? Well, probably, probably because they're lights. And, the, and the, the reality is the nations, they knew the sun as the God. Moon, God. What he wanted Israel to know was that these powerful gods of the pagans to bring them such fear are just lights. Glorious lights, but just lights. Made by our God to give light on the earth. And almost as an afterthought, um, you know, I think of... I think of uh, I think of the book of Jonah and the way that Jonah ends and kind of like, the, I think the last phrase in Jonah, after all this deep stuff, it says, and much cattle. Uh, it's kind of like this, this reality here is like, and the stars. And of course, we know what stars are, right? Stars are balls of gas and fire and they're enormous. The sun being a small one. And God spoke. As easy as a plant, potentially, it's not easy. God spoke, came into being. God spoke, sun, great light. God is telling us that pagan gods are mere creatures. Our destiny is not held by the stars. Our destiny is not held by circumstantial things that are going on. Our, we, we need not fear odds, chance, or, or anything in the universe, for our God is king, sovereign over all. Our, our God made everything. Our lives are safe in his infinitely powerful hands. You, you look at the sun, and you're amazed by it, and everyone is, and rightly so, and don't look at the sun for very long, right? But because it'll destroy you. It's, it most certainly is amazing. God spoke it into existence. You think the millions of solar systems in the universe are mind-boggling when you consider just our small little galaxy, which is enormous. If you've ever seen, you know, parts of the Milky Way, enormous. God spoke them into existence. Facing the giants of the land or the various enemies they would face and the threat of the evil, powerful, false gods of the nation stands their God calling them to look to him trust him, obey him, pray to him, yield to him. This is why a verse like, if God is for us, who can be against us, yeah, means anything at all to us. Plenty can seem to be against us, right? All sorts of things can seem to be against us. But the truth is, if the speaking God, the, the God over all is for us, well, all is really truly in hand, even though things might seem chaotic in my life. Friends, the author of Genesis wants us to know. God wants us to know him and to trust entirely in who he is as the king of all. He created everything with his word. He created everything in seven days. Lastly, the author emphasizes this. The king of the universe created everything good. He created everything in a certain way, and that certain way is good. Six times we read, and God saw that it was good. The light was good. The dry land was good. The vegetation was good. The light of sun, moon, and stars was good. The fish and birds were good. The land animals were good. 
And finally, God creates human beings. The seventh time, we read in verse 31, God saw everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God created the world very good. And you can see this especially on day six and seven. On day six, God created the land animals, and then he just kind of seems to pause. And we're getting to the climax of the story of, of, of Moses, God omnisciently, and Moses um, obediently writing this for a purpose, to strengthen and to comfort, to inform of God's glory and his greatness and his kingship. It's the climax of this portion. God pauses and seems to deliberate with himself. He says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And we spoke about this a few weeks ago on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, but let me just reiterate a, a small bit. In the ancient Near East, again, a king would place images of himself um, statues and whatnot in provinces that were far away. Why, why would he do that? Uh, well, to tell everyone that these provinces that are far away from the capital are actually his provinces. They, they, it's, it's part of his kingdom. And God made human beings in his image and placed us on this earth that, that we would be his image bearers. The world we live in is God's domain. It's his kingdom that we would point to that reality. As images of God, we represent God in this world. As, as his image bearers, we are tasked with managing the kingdom on God's behalf. That, that's God's good plan for the kingdom and for human beings. It does not make us omnipotent and sovereign. God carefully considers in verse 26 Let's make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Both male and female receive the highest honor and authority of being rulers on this earth on behalf of the king of the universe. And God provides sufficient food for his creatures. He's providing everything that they need. When they come to verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was just very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The, the king of the universe, the creator, the omnipotent, sovereign one, assesses that he created everything very good. And you can see how good God was for us. This, this highest honor of being created in his image. What a, what, a, what a privilege. Receiving authority and responsibility to have dominion over God's world. What a, what a humble privilege that we tend to usurp. God providing sufficient food for us and our offspring, worthy to be believed, worthy to be trusted upon. The goodness of God's creation is underscored on day seven. I think, in my opinion, everything is running to this day seven. Everything. One of the things that God is trying to tell his people, striving to tell his people, not just here, but through the law, through, through Jesus, and with the promise of heaven, everything comes to, to this kind of almost like mistaken day or, 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 or day that's not considered too much. Read in Genesis 2, 1. The heavens and earth were finished, all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God's creation was complete. God's kingdom on earth was established. God blessed the seventh day, and it was something different. It wasn't just good. He made it holy. The seventh day that he 
made holy. He set it apart from the six days of work as a very special day, a day that everything again drives toward, a day when God's people can rest from their labors, enjoy the fruit of their work, focus on the worship of their great creator, God. Consider the joy of the promised rest in God for Israel as they're facing all the fears and all the anxieties amid the busyness that they are dealing with. Consider the joy being able to rest, to find rest amid, amid all the significant fears. Consider the joy of finding the promised rest in God amid all your fears, all your anxieties, all your struggles, all your sicknesses, all your doubts. Certainly there is rest, as Wendell Berry speaks of in his poem called The Peace of Wild Things. He writes this, he says, when despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting for their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and I'm free. Beautiful poem and, and big Wendell Berry fan, Joy and I enjoy him, our family enjoys him, and there's certainly a wonderful reality of going out for a walk and going to enjoy rest in a meadow, um, and certainly Jesus speaks about this in Matthew 6, right? The toil and spinning, you know, they, they don't, nature doesn't toil and spin, they know where their food's coming from. They trust they can rest. But, but the rest and peace we have been promised in God makes the temporal peace like this pale in comparison, as wonderful as that is. Consider the words of a brother from Minneapolis concerning the principle of Sabbath rest. He says, the principle of Sabbath is a glorious picture of God's self-sufficiency and unwavering ability to provide. As God's people, our rest becomes a decisive, concrete, visible way of opting for and aligning with the God of rest. You hear that? I just love that. He is the God of rest. He, he is not just the sovereign, omnipotent God. He is the... What are you looking for? What is it you're looking for? Is it not rest? Is it not peace amid all the turmoil? Rest. He is the God of rest. And all this stuff is pointing, pointing, pointing to Israel and to us. Trust in the God of rest. Perhaps as much now as in that early biblical context, he goes on to say, one of the most head-turning, soul-stirring moves we make as a witness to God's holiness is when we stop. At night when we go to bed, on a whole day when we pause our projects, in a season of vacation or sabbatical, our stopping work is our saying, enough to the merry-go-round. We don't have to ride this thing. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, Hebrews 4. Rest, then, becomes our regular dramatization of the heart of the gospel. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith will be counted as righteousness. There is a rest to be experienced in God, in his provision for us, ultimately at the cross. But in God himself, 
the sovereign, omnipotent king of the universe. We can put down our tools. We can close our computers. We can forbid those thoughts about that next meeting or those emails waiting for a reply or how the numbers aren't as high as we'd like. We can stop and trust him who justifies the ungodly. We can trust that when Jesus died in our place on the cross, he died to destroy all the anxieties of our lack, to still our ceaseless striving, to hush the winds of our self-justifying labor, to irrevocably connect us to the abundance of his grace we possess by his work, not ours. We can trust the Lord of rest who came to give us rest and say because of who he is stop making bricks you can stop you see god what god's telling israel and us today i i've got everything he he is the sovereign king he will provide for us so rest from your work gather for worship read for enjoyment strengthen your faith put your phone away enjoy his creation and enjoy family and friends and we can find rest in him not only on a special day but, but every day. He provides for us. The Creator goes before us. He comes behind us and He walks with us. In fact, the very Spirit of God that hovered over the waters, the very Spirit that blew over the dry bones of Ezekiel 37, the very Spirit who's promised in the new covenant that we now enjoy, dwelling within us, filling us, empowering us, strengthening us, opening our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, causing us to look to God, to believe His promises, to trust Him, walk forward into whatever uncertainty and fear you're facing knowing that he's with you and knowing that his rod and his staff oh they will comfort you it's he who makes you lie down in green pastures and leads you beside still waters and he is he who will restore your soul and even though you walk and you do walk some of you and all of us at one point walk through the valley of the shadow of death whatever sense of weakness whatever sense of evil and or death you're experiencing you can do so without any fear of evil why because the omnipotent, loving, good king of the universe is with you. He's comforting you, preparing a table before you, even amid the presence of your enemies. So true is this, so vital is this, so life-giving is this. The psalmist says, my cup, it overflows. Does it overflow? Does this truth overflow in your life? Does Genesis 1 evoke all this reality of all the promises of God throughout Scripture because He is the sovereign King of the universe? Your Creator God will follow you all the days of your life and in the end, well, you will dwell in His perfect kingdom forever and ever. What, what have you to fear. He has not left you as an orphan. You are his child. He's with you wherever you go, strengthening you, keeping you, guarding you through every single tumult and will bring you safely home into your final rest. He has guaranteed it. He's promised it. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Be still and know that I am God, he says. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This God God created everything very good. And we can trust Him and rest in Him all along the way. All of creation points to the rest that's only found in trusting God to be true to His powerful Word. This, this God is greater than any asteroid. This God is greater than any supervolcano. 
This God is greater than any star, greater than any galaxy, greater than the whole universe, greater than that mighty disease you struggle with, greater than the sorrows and anxieties and the depression you wrestle against and that sin that so easily besets you. Where is it that your help comes from? My help comes from the Lord, who, the psalmist says, goes all the way back to Genesis 1, the Lord who created heaven and earth. He declares that he does not sleep, that he is our keeper, that he is our shade, that he is our protector. And Psalm 46 says at the very beginning that he is a very present help in trouble. This is the primary message of Genesis 1. This, this is the primary message of Revelation 22. And this is the primary message of this entire book. In the infinitely powerful hands of our faithful God, the king of the universe and the king of our hearts, God's people are kept safe in a very good kingdom. His very good kingdom. So, so friends, look to him. Get to know him. Talk with him. Don't ignore him. Look for him. Look to him for your help. Take your sorrows to him and tear-stained, dependent prayers, trusting him to be true to his promises, trusting him to be true to his powerful, omnipotent word. Take your parenting struggles to him in dependent prayer and know that in the days of such uncertainty and, and significant heart pain and confusion that he'll be true to his promises. Things that you can't see the way through. You can't see the way out. He is to be trusted and entirely leaned on. Take your marital struggles to him in dependent prayer and trust him as you humble yourself before him. Take your understandable anger with the cultural evils of our day to him in dependent, earnest, persistent prayer, trusting him in every communication, every vote, every action. Cry out to, cry out to him to restore the joy of your salvation. Confess your sin to him and know his certain forgiveness. Sing out with thanksgiving for life and breath and his promises and his nearness and his protection and his presence with you, never leaving you but walking with you all along the way through your personal difficulties and struggles, promising to strengthen you by the Spirit that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may know how deep, wide, long, and high the love of Christ is for you, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Amid the fearful, anxious, difficult, troubled days you and I experience in our parenting, in our marriages, in our country, in our schools, in our hurts, in our relationships, in our health, in our emotions, in our doubtings, and in our wonderings, we cry out with the psalmist, for God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock. He only is my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation. On God rests my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge. It's God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God, the King of the universe, our King, He is a refuge for us. Amen.